October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenus History Podcast, episode number 39, The Jonesmobile. Last time, we finished our two-part series about Ellen White's time in Australia. We talked about the Brighton Camp Meeting, Ellen White becoming a vegetarian, the founding of Avondale College, the new sanitarium, and Willie White's experiment with Kellogg's new wheat flakes. Willie took one bite of them and said, they're great! And that's all the free advertising you're going to get, Kellogg's. If you want more, send a check. Though, if you know what's going to happen in a few episodes with John Harvey Kellogg, something tells me that check is going to get lost in the mail. All right. After our two-episode vacation in Australia, it's time to head back to America to see what's cooking. The first thing you'll notice when you arrive at Battle Creek is just how many of our friends are gone. Ellen and Willie White are in Australia, of course, with A.G. Daniels. Edson White is in the southern United States. Stephen Haskell is around, but he'll soon head out on a world tour. W.W. Prescott is about to do the same thing. George Ida Butler never fully recovered from the 1888 General Conference session, and so he's in Florida recovering with his wife. Well, first things first, then. Let's grab a coffee and catch back up with our old friends Jones and Wagner. Well, not coffee, or even tea, because Jones won't stand for such a waste of money. Well, how about water? Water's free. Is water good? Okay, good. So... We arrive at the cafe to catch up with Jones and Wagner, except Wagner isn't there, because he got shipped off to England about the same time Ellen White went to Australia. So it's just Jones, and that's really the point I want to make about America in the 1890s. It's just Jones. I mean, obviously other people are around. Prescott and Kellogg and Uriah Smith are all hanging around, but none of them have the influence that Alonzo T. Jones has. Why does Jones have this kind of influence? Mainly because he was the winner, although we probably shouldn't use that word, of the 1888 General Conference controversy. Ellen White had mostly supported him, and he leveraged that support for everything it was worth. At various General Conference sessions, he set himself up as the official reader and interpreter of her letters. On top of that, He was the one-man army defending the church from Sunday laws. He went to Washington, D.C. twice to testify before Congress about why Sunday laws were a bad idea. He stood before them and yelled, You shall not pass this bill. Okay, maybe not. But he was an incisive, decisive, and courageous leader who had his finger on the headlines of the day. And influence matters. Because influence is authority, especially in a religious organization. In 1901, Jones would tell the General Conference session delegates that, quote, position never gives authority, end quote. He repeated it over and over. Then he said, position, place, never gives authority. Authority qualifies you for the place. I will say it again. It must be a watchword for everyone in this conference. Position never gives authority. Whomsoever God has called to be the president of the general conference the next term will have no more authority than he has right now. End quote. 
Jones called this a Protestant principle. The idea that a position gave you authority, therefore, was a Catholic idea because they believed that suddenly a man changed when he sat on the chair of St. Peter and could now speak infallibly. In Jones's words, the Holy Spirit rests on the papacy regardless of the quality of man who wears the hat. Not so in Protestantism, he argued. In Protestantism, you don't need a position to have authority. There's a certain seductive quality in Jones's argument. We've all had bosses who didn't try to earn your respect. They just sat behind their title demanding respect. But Jones's point about authority being something independent of office raises questions, such as, does that mean that those with official positions in the church can be ignored if they don't have that authority of influence? Let me put it to another way, because Jones saw that influence as something that the Holy Spirit gives to you. That influence earns authority, and you can only have that authority if the Holy Spirit is with you. So does that mean that we could ignore people in official positions of the church who don't have authority that the Holy Spirit has given them? We're going to get back to that question, I promise. Now I know we're overdue for spending part of an episode on a bird's eye view of what's going on with the Adventist church around the world. We can't possibly keep up with all the countries being entered. But that's going to have to wait until next time. This episode is going to zoom in and focus on Jones. Not because he's the only one doing anything, but because his story introduces us to many of the church's struggles during the 1890s which will lead us nicely into the tumultuous events of the early 20th century. Yay! One more word before we dive in. I'm going to be focusing on things Jones got wrong in the 1890s. So please, please, please don't think that everything he did was wrong. Okay? All right, let's buckle our seatbelt. We're going to go for a ride in the Jonesmobile. Beginning in 1890, Jones got caught up in a wave of enthusiasm for faith healings that was sweeping through the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And when we talk about faith healings today, we can't help but think of that guy with the white suit on TV smacking people on the forehead. And after they recover from their concussions, presumably they're healed. And most of us look at that with a mixture of humor and horror. Well, it wasn't quite like that in the 1890s. It was more like walking up to a sick person in the hospital and saying, if you had real faith in Jesus, you'd be healed. And of course, if you don't get better, it's because you never really had real faith. It was a convenient way to test who was in and who was out. This was a manifestation of a new movement making its way through American Protestantism at this time. Churches like the Methodists were almost broken in two by it, and Adventists were not immune to its influence. We call this the Holiness Movement. And its focus was the discovery of the Holy Spirit. C.I. Schofield wrote in 1899, quote, Within the last 20 years, more has been written and said upon the doctrine of the Holy Spirit than in the preceding 1800 years, end quote. Everywhere, there was a general feeling that the Holy Spirit was being neglected. And so Christians were wanting to access the power of the Holy Spirit in their own lives. If the Holy Spirit healed the sick in the early church, why not here and now? For 1,800 years, Christians had told themselves something like, Oh, well, God only wanted to heal people back then. He doesn't really want to do that today. 
But now there was this feeling that maybe that ex- that was just an excuse. Maybe we just lack the faith, and the Holy Spirit has always wanted to heal people. Well, our man A.T. Jones was not the leader of this movement, but it was right up his alley. We've talked about Jones's personality a bit during the run-up to 1888, but our focus was mostly on Butler and Smith. Jones was increasingly a logical extremist since those days. He never met an issue he couldn't run with as far as it was humanly possible to take it. If Jones had a car, he probably would rationalize that he should drive at 120 miles per hour simply because if you're going to go somewhere, you should go there as fast as you could. He lacked a kind of governor on his motor, on his logical motor. And when he headed in a direction, he ran as fast and as far as he could. And you're going to see exactly what I mean before this episode is over. Now, the whole faith healing movement in the American Adventist Church was short-lived, at least in the early 1890s, but it was damaging. There may have been one or two people who truly were miraculously healed. It's hard to tell. But there definitely were some who were very naturally killed. For instance, John Loughborough even got tangled up in this, and in one case, he prayed for a woman who had typhoid fever and a temperature of 104 degrees. After praying with her, she was invited out for a carriage ride. She didn't feel any better. She didn't feel healed, of course, but you had to demonstrate your faith that God was healing you. So this woman went out for a ride. When she arrived back at the sanitarium, her fever spiked and she died. Do you want to know who wasn't at all impressed by this faith healing stuff? John Harvey Kellogg. That's who. These were his patients and his health principles being violated. He finally managed to convince everyone that this was dangerous and dumb because the people were always being told that they needed to prove their faith. Now, maybe it wasn't a carriage ride for everybody. For some people, they just stopped taking their medication. And so Kellogg managed to convince everyone that maybe we should just focus on good health principles and let God heal whomever he sees fit to heal. So he convinced Jones and others, and the movement died down. Next up was the Anna Phillips saga. Anna Phillips was a young woman who, for whatever reason, felt she might have been given the gift of prophecy, just like Ellen White. Ever since 1844, there had been a steady stream of spiritual fanatics who had claimed this sort of thing. But Anna Phillips was honestly unsure of what was going on. So she brought it to a member of the family she lived with in California, and they enthusiastically supported her. So she began writing testimonies to people, which sounded like something Ellen White would write. Now, just to jog your memory, a testimony is something that Ellen White would write someone that she felt inspired to write to them. Okay, that's in distinction from a regular letter like, hey, how are things going, blah, 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 blah. A testimony was something like, I felt that God wanted me to tell you this. Okay, so Anna Phillips is writing these testimonies, things she feels that God is telling her to tell other people. Well, the Rice's approval, that's the family she lived with. The Rice's approval didn't completely convince Anna Phillips whether she was truly a prophet, however. There was one man in America whose opinion was all that mattered. You guessed it, A.T. Jones. So she wrote Jones and said, basically, please compare my testimonies to the Bible and make sure I'm really a prophet. Because that's how things should be done, right? 
Now, later, Ellen would be wondering why on earth no one asked her to weigh in on this because, you know, she had a little experience with the whole profit thing, but whatever. Anyway, so Jones looked over Anna Phillips' testimonies, and he declared that Anna Phillips had the gift of prophecy. Now, this is a story many Adventists are unfamiliar with, and they think, wow, we had two prophets in the Seventh-day Adventist church? Well, not quite. Take a look at how Jones came to the conclusion that she was a prophet. Okay, his first reason was Anna Phillips' testimonies did not contradict the Bible or Ellen White. And that's a good test, right? Somebody who claims to be a prophet shouldn't be contradicting previous prophets. Okay, his second reason was that he claimed he heard the voice of Jesus in her writings. Not out loud, not the heavens opening up and hearing the voice of God. No, it's just that as he read her testimonies, he felt that this was the voice of Jesus speaking to him. And that's it. Those are his two reasons. And you hear them and you think, that's it? That's all you need to believe someone is a prophet? As long as they don't contradict the Bible and as long as it sounds like something Jesus would say? Oh, gee whiz, Jones. Ellen White was just dumbstruck by this. I mean, positively dumbstruck. I mean, look, if someone claims to be a prophet and sends you a letter that says, be faithful to your spouse, study your Bible, and love God, then of course there's nothing objectionable in that. That sounds like something Jesus would say. That's just good biblical sense, but that doesn't mean that person is a prophet. You have to look for something more. Well, Jones and his friend Prescott did not look for something more. That was all they needed. So Jones went to preach to the Battle Creek Church in early 1894. His sermon consisted of Ellen White's testimonies in one hand and Anna Phillips's testimonies in the other. And Jones was about to conduct a social experiment. He was going to read from both testimonies side by side and see if people could tell any difference. If they couldn't, if they couldn't tell Ellen White's testimonies from Anna Phillips's testimonies, then that would demonstrate that they are both prophets, right? Right? Well, of course, Jones didn't tell them who this other prophet was that he was reading from, though I'm sure more than a few people figured it out. The congregation in Battle Creek walked out of church very confused. I mean, what was Jones trying to say? If Anna Phillips and Ellen White sound similar, is that the kind of proof we need that Anna Phillips is a prophet? Right? Remember how influential Jones was at this point. The next day, that is Sunday, Jones went to the post office. Now, our American listeners shouldn't be surprised by that. The post office was always open on Sundays for most of American history until the same religious forces that were trying to pass a Sunday law managed to force the post office to be closed on Sundays in 1912. So thanks a lot for that, guys. The post office was a place to hang out back then. It was a place to hear the news of the world. You can just sit around. Your friends will show up periodically, play cards, whatever. So Jones strides in that Sunday, the Sunday after he preaches his sermon in Battle Creek, and he asks for his mail. One of his letters was from Ellen White in Australia. Now, let me tell you something. I imagine that when you got a letter from Ellen White, your heart skips a beat. You don't just go home, throw it on your counter, and go back to playing fetch with your dog or whatever it is they did back then to have fun. Jones took the letter 
sat down immediately in the post office and read it. He couldn't even wait until he got home. Because if you believe Ellen White is a prophet who sometimes gets messages from God for people, you want to know what God might be telling you. So as Jones read the letter, he began to cry. Oscar Tate entered the post office, and when Jones saw him, he asked him to sit down. You remember my sermon yesterday? Jones asked. Oscar said he had, of course. I mean, who could forget it? Then Jones handed Oscar the letter, who read its few pages as quickly as possible. Fortunately, we have Ellen White's letter, so we can read over Jones and Oscar's shoulder as they sat there in the post office. This is what the letter says. Quote, The word of God is your counselor. The word of God is your authority. Be very careful how you bring anything weaker to take its place. You may, my brother, feel much more certainty in regard to the movements made in Battle Creek after reading the writings of Anna Phillips in connection with the communications from Sister White given her of God. I deeply regret that you should make this connection. I discern the future more clearly than you do. Take your Bibles and dwell upon the truth. Preach the word and let the Holy Spirit of God impress the hearts of the hearers. Jones knew he was reading something amazing. I mean, the mail from Australia took about a month, meaning Ellen White had written this long before Jones's sermon. Jones asked Oscar Tate, who told Sister White a month ago I was going to preach that sermon about Anna Phillips as a prophetess? Tate, a quiet man, responded, Ah, you know, Alonzo. Yes, said Jones, I do know. God knew what I was going to do, and he impressed Sister White a month ago before I preached the sermon to send the testimony that I am wrong. Look at that date. Well, to his credit, the next week Jones again stood before the Battle Creek congregation and told them that he was wrong. Interestingly, W.W. Prescott was out in Walla Walla, Washington, ready to take the helm of one of the church's newest schools, Walla Walla College. He, too, was going to speak on Anna Phillips and encourage his students to consider her as a prophet. And Stephen Haskell, who was out there at the time, had tried to dissuade him, telling him this is a bad idea, don't do this, and Prescott just kind of ignored him. But a couple of hours before he was going to speak to the students, he was handed a copy of another Ellen White letter that had just arrived, and when he read it, he dropped the whole Anna Phillips thing. Stephen Haskell noticed this, and he wrote to Ellen White, I have heard about testimonies coming just in season, but I have never experienced such providence before. And that was the end of that. Ellen White's approach to the problem was interesting. She never denied that God might send another prophet, so her opposition to Anna Phillips wasn't some kind of professional rivalry. In fact, she had resolved to say as little as possible about the subject. She only intervened when she heard people saying that she had endorsed Anna Phillips as a prophet. Now, she had to correct that rumor. But even when she censured Jones and Prescott for over-promoting this girl, for being her, their, her hype managers, she was very cautious about doing it as gently as possible. The tendency for the zealous Jones would be to do a 180 when he received this letter, right? Collecting every letter from Anna Phillips and burning them or something. And if they aren't from God, they must be destroyed. But Ellen saw the danger in overreaction. She wrote, quote, Let there be no abrupt moves to call them in, that is the letters, 
and destroy them as if they were poison. Where they have already been sent out with the sanction of our responsible men, let them remain. To make abrupt moves now would do harm. End quote. Oh, and Anna Phillips, realizing she had been mistaken by this whole thing, continued on as a good member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Alonzo T. Jones, not realizing he had been mistaken, would eventually not continue on as a good member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Ah, but there we go, getting ahead of ourselves again. When we start talking about church-state relations, which is where we're going to move on now, that's where we really see how far Jones could go. So let's begin with the pop quiz. I don't know what discussions are happening in other countries, but in America, the relationship between church and state is still vigorously debated. So this quiz is really keyed to our American listeners. Here goes. Question number one. Is it Christians or atheists who believe religion should not be taught in public schools? Question number two. Is it Christians or atheists? who get nervous about things like national days of prayer, military chaplains, things like that. Finally, question number three. Is it more likely that Christians or atheists would like to see religious property taxed? You ready for the answers? The answer to every question is atheists. Atheists don't want to see religion taught in public schools, they don't much like national days of prayer, and they tend to think religious-owned property should be taxed. They look at these things like the government is favoring religions in a violation of the separation of church and state. Now, I'm giving you this quiz because these were all positions which A.T. Jones held. Of course, he believed in prayer, but he didn't think it belonged in public schools. He wanted church buildings to be taxed, precisely for the same reasons that atheists want this done today. He even suggested that America should strip all Christians of citizenship. Doesn't Paul in the Bible say that we are citizens of heaven? Well, how then can you be a citizen of heaven and earth at the same time? In the 1892 decision of Holy Trinity versus the United States, Supreme Court Justice Brewer stated that, quote, this is a Christian nation, end quote. This again raised the alarm bells at Adventist headquarters. At the 1893 General Conference, they met and released a booklet to argue against the idea of America as a Christian nation. Principally, they were afraid of Sunday laws, of course. Now, I just want to hit the pause button right here and take a little detour because I think our Adventist listeners will be amused by what happened with this little booklet that the 1893 General Conference session released. What happened was, the Catholics read it. Now, the Catholics were a little more lukewarm to Sunday laws in America. I haven't studied that topic in a lot of detail, but my guess is that they might be technically in favor of some of them, or all of them, but maybe also a little put off by the fact that it was these zealous Protestants who were the ones pushing for it. Nevertheless, the fact that Protestants were pushing so hard for Sunday laws was amusing, because when the Catholic Mirror saw the Adventist booklet against Sunday laws, they couldn't help themselves, they had to comment on this. So this is what they said. Protestants, quote, 
have been teaching and practicing what is scripturally false for over three centuries, in other words, since the Reformation, by adopting the teaching and practice of what they have always pretended to believe in apostate church, contrary to every warrant in teaching of sacred scripture. To add to the intensity of this scriptural and unpardonable blunder, it involves one of the most positive and emphatic commands of God to his servant man, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. End quote. Let's just pause right there before we continue the quote and just talk about what we're saying so far, what the Catholics are saying so far. The Catholics are saying, we find it terribly ironic that Protestants have been keeping Sunday as the Sabbath for three centuries all the while calling the Catholic Church an apostate church and claiming that they only follow the Bible. They only follow the Bible. Meanwhile, they're keeping Sunday as Sabbath, which is something not found in the Bible. And this isn't just a small thing, the Catholics said. They said it involves one of the most positive and emphatic commands of God in all of Scripture, that command to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Okay, let's resume with our quote. No Protestant living today has ever yet obeyed that command, preferring to follow the apostate church referred to than his teacher, the Bible, which, from Genesis to Revelation, teaches no other doctrine, should the Israelites and Seventh-day Adventists be correct. Both sides appeal to the Bible as their infallible teacher. Let the Bible decide whether Saturday or Sunday be the day enjoined by God. One of the two bodies must be wrong. In other words, either these Protestants pushing for a Sunday law or Seventh-day Adventists and Jews must be correct. You guys both can't be right. Why don't you guys go to the Bible and see which one of you is true? I mean, the Catholics are positively taunting the Protestants. You guys claim to follow the Bible. Why are you following us? Go, go consult the Bible and see what's true. In other words, y'all didn't get that Sunday is the Sabbath from the Bible like you claim. You got it from us. The church you pretended to believe is an apostate church, that is the Catholics, is really the church that you're obeying. Now Jones read this challenge, and I just imagine that he just fell backwards in his chair when he saw it. He wasted no time in echoing the Catholics and just really let his rhetorical guns blaze. Merry Christmas, Mr. Jones. Anyways, back to the 1893 GC session and the booklet they released. What's interesting about it, is that the church formally adopted Jones's belief that churches should be taxed. This was really an awkward place to be. And other churches heaped scorn on Adventists because, you know, we've got a good thing going here and you're kind of ruining it. The Michigan legislature was intrigued. They invited Jones to come up to Lansing and talk a little more about it. Curiously, Kellogg was just at this time pushing his own bill through the Michigan legislature, so that his medical missionary work, including an orphanage, would be tax-exempt. Here we go. The two men were on opposite sides yet again. The medical side of the church wants to be tax-exempt. The religious liberty side of the church is pushing to be taxed. Now, Jones was also in opposition to the church's missionary apparatus. A British company in what is now Zimbabwe, which, let's just be honest, was unofficially the colonial government there. Anyways, this British company was offering 12,000 acres of free land, free land, 
for the establishment of a missionary outpost. The Adventist missionaries in South Africa wanted to jump all over that. But guess who didn't want to jump at all? Oh yeah, A.T. Jones. Jones published blistering articles against them in his religious liberty paper, The American Sentinel. Stephen Haskell, in South Africa at the time, accepted the British offer on behalf of the church. Jones was furious. Now, to be fair, Ole Olson, the General Conference president, wasn't super happy either. He wanted the missionaries to pay for the land. But Jones, Jones, well, to him, this move was a forfeit of every single principle the church ever held dear. This is what he wrote, quote, How the missionaries who have thus sold themselves for a mess of African pottage will succeed in serving two masters remains to be seen. End quote. The missionaries, Jones and his colleagues alleged, were simply following the gospel of force, the gospel of colonialism. Of course, he is referencing the story in that first comment of Jacob and Esau in the Bible, where Esau forfeited his sacred birthright for some soup. And I just want to go back in time and ask Jones, what birthright did these missionaries exactly compromise here? They got free land. They didn't give up the Sabbath or the Bible or whatever. I mean, I can kind of get where he's coming from. If the church will accept government favors in Zimbabwe, why can't they accept them here in America, right? Why can't a church ask for a Sunday law? In Jones's mind, it undercut everything he had ever done in fighting against those laws. But then again, isn't there a difference between a coercive Sunday law and accepting a free gift from the government with no strings attached? Jones's attacks were so relentless and so savage that Ellen White felt compelled to intervene. After rebuking Jones and other hardliners, she wrote, quote, the Lord still moves upon the hearts of kings and rulers in behalf of his people, and it becomes those who are so deeply interested in the religious liberty question not to cut off any favors or withdraw themselves from the help that God has moved men to give for the advancement of his cause. End quote. In other words, chill out, Jones. Chill out. But Jones did not chill out. In 1897, he was selected to replace Uriah Smith as the new editor of the Review. While we can lament Smith's role in the 1888 controversy, the guy has been editor since 1855. That's been 42 straight years. That's incredible. The church, the world, had changed a lot in those 42 years. But Smith, for whatever reason, was captaining a sinking ship. Many thought him old-fashioned and worn out. Jones, clearly, was the incisive commentator of the day, whereas Smith just seemed to repeat old slogans. Or so they said. So Jones was in, much to the delight of Jones. He did turn the ship around, but he also employed his acerbic wit and caustic style to go after his enemies. And this was wearing on people. They were getting tired of his intense attacks and narrow vision. Jones was getting even more extreme in his views. By the late 1890s, the holiness movement was coming back with a vengeance. Now, the emphasis this time wasn't faith healings, but having holy flesh, which they understood to mean that if you have the Holy Spirit in your life, your body should show it in some way. 
Some Adventist pastors declared it wrong to kill a bug or to have a gray hair, because if you have a gray hair, it means the Holy Spirit is not renewing your body. So how can you be saved? Haskell, who's kind of been our sideline voice of reason in this episode, called these holiness teachings a false application of righteousness by faith, and Ellen White joined him in condemning it. This movement bit Indiana hard, and this is the context for a famous statement Ellen White made about the playing of drums, but we're not going to get into that here. Everywhere this movement went, it seemed to tempt people toward fanaticism and chaos, and it would eventually give birth to an even more troublesome movement, pantheism. What this super-emphasis on the Holy Spirit meant for Jones was clear when it came to the issue of organization. Organization was once again a hot topic in the church in the late 1890s. Hey, the church was really organized in 1863 with some minor tweaks along the way, and that's a long time to not make any changes. I mean, the structure that they built in 1863 with just a few thousand members was not enough to carry the weight of this global, rapidly expanding movement that we have in the late 1890s. Something had to be done. Something had to change. We had to reorganize this whole structure. And there was no shortage of opinions. The question was simply, which opinion was right? Well, Jones definitely had his opinions, and he drove his opinions hard at the final two general conference sessions of the 19th century. If we were all following the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't need organization, he said. Organization is Babylon. Just trust the Spirit to move pastors around when they need to change countries or change churches. right? You don't need a general conference for that. You don't need anyone to lobby for fundraising for a project. Just trust the Holy Spirit to inspire people to give money to the project. Jones said, quote, If God is not a sufficient ruler for Seventh-day Adventists, it is because they are not believing in him with all the heart. It is because they are so much like the heathen that they must have a heathen government and heathen power to protect themselves from themselves. End quote. It's almost like we've gone back in time to the 1850s, where skeptics of James White's plan to organize the church also thought that if we organized our church, it would make us just like the world. So here we are again. And once again, we really, really need Ellen White to come home and help clean up this mess, just like in the mid-1880s. Well, the good news is, she's on her way. If anyone can control the Jonesmobile, it's her. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... 
you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>